Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New York City is a mess. We've got an attorney general who is weaponizing her position purely for political reasons to get Donald Trump. We have a Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, who doesn't want to prosecute criminals, but wants to go after people who engage in self-defense like Daniel Penny. We've got a mayor who's a mess, a governor who's a mess of the state. Kathy Hochul. I want to dig into a lot of the problems in this city, the crime. You know, we've recently seen illegal immigrants make news for beating police officers there, as well as just the broader issues facing the country. So we're going to talk to one man named Paul Morrow. He's a contributor at Fox News. I was on with him recently on Outnumbered, and he just did such a great job. He's so interesting. So I wanted to have him on the show to, to get into some of those more granular issues that are going on in New York City, but also the broader issues facing the country uh, of crime and, and also just wasted resources as our cities are falling apart in America, but they sure as heck have enough money and time to go after Donald Trump. And then also just looking at New York City with this influx of illegal immigrants, you know, what's the likelihood of a terror attack? Paul is a lawyer, and he also previously served as the commanding officer of the NYPD's legal bureau and the executive officer of the Intelligence Operations and Analysis Bureau. So he's sort of seen all different sides of these issues that we're going to talk about today. Really interesting guy, super smart. I think you're going to like this one. Stay tuned for Paul Morrow. Paul, it's great to have you on the show. I was on Outnumbered with you uh, not too long ago, and uh, you just did such a great job. So I really wanted to have you on the show. So I'm glad we were able to make it happen. I appreciate that. Thank you. You'd made a really interesting point from your perspective of when Secretary Austin was in the hospital and he failed to alert the White House. Uh, that meant that Joe Biden was not the guy in charge. And, and you had kind of seen that before. And I, I just thought it was such a, an interesting perspective and an interesting point that you had made. Yeah, so I think it's a subtlety, and uh, you may have had to have worked in a military or paramilitary organization to kind of pick up on it, but Austin got a lot of heat for that, and then there was the sort of reflective heat of it on 
the White House for saying, well, how was he not even missed? But going a little further, what occurred to me almost immediately was the fact that it was the atmosphere within the administration itself as which explained why Austin didn't feel compelled to notify his overhead. And anybody who's worked in this sort of a, uh, uh, environment knows that it often happens in transition periods when a big commissioner or a chief leaves and there is a vacuum at the top. You suddenly feel a little bit cast adrift. Now, the good side of that is when you have somebody who's not, not micromanaging you, right? It's a macro manager who's letting you do your thing. But then the continuum goes to the point where you have an overhead that's absentee. And what happens then is that you just don't feel like anything you do much matters or is going to be responded to the, by the people above you. And that's my read on why Austin didn't bother to make what would have been a simple email or phone call notification, which, trust me, is in the blood of people, especially at his level, in a military or paramilitary organization. You have to keep your overhead notified. Um, and the fact that he didn't just really speaks to me of a very, very loose and disjointed organization at the at the top of our military apparatus. These bureaus, these these bureaucracies, they survive by their connective tissue. And very clearly here, that connection, connective tissue is worn down. You know, of having served in the NYPD as both a commanding officer of the legal bureau um, as well as uh, in the intelligence oper oper operations and um, analysis bureau, I mean, it, it's got to be hard to see what's happening in the city, just the, the lawlessness, the lack of respect for the law. Uh, when do you think the breakdown started and why do you think it's gotten so bad? Well, I think it's always there here in uh, New York and in our major cities uh, because it's such an endemic part of the progressive narrative. Um, and what you have is the cycles where they are either in the ascendancy or they are not. Post 9-11, for lack of a better term, we got a little bit of a honeymoon period. And there was great support for the police and for the mission of the police and of law and order in general. And that, that even went so far as to um, sort of uh, affect how the feds were perceived. And so you had all these federal task forces, and they were really given a lot of purchase. And we had about a 20-year renaissance where we were able to implement the classic broken windows policing, the metrics were cleared, they were working. And then what you had was the the sort of, um, for lack of a better term, victims of our own success syndrome, where it just became received wisdom that this is how it always was. And a lot of new arrivals into the city have no cognizance of what New York looked like when I was a kid in the 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s, <clears throat> you know, when when the city had not implemented broken windows and when they went to an all-hands-on-deck approach. And so very naively, they began to advocate for a much less proactive policing and, in fact, villainized the police, as has traditionally been the case on the left since at least the 1960s. And then you got a fellow traveler in office named Bill de Blasio. And that's when I would say that the trend that you're referring to really took off. De Blasio had to play ball for his first two years or so because he knew the narrative was that his was going to be a failed mayoralty because he was going to cut against everything I just said. Everybody was waiting for that. Now, de Blasio isn't a stupid man. He has a certain reptilian political intelligence, which is how he got where he got. 
So he put in Bill Bratton, one of the nation's premier police commissioners. And I mention all that because it was a real honeymoon period. Not only did crime continue to go down to record low levels, so did incarceration rates. And that's something we really should be looking at. And if these so-called police scholars were really worth their salt, they would be looking at that era to figure out why it all worked so well. Because it did, and I had a front row seat. But de Blasio couldn't take that, nor could the progressives in this town who just use all this as a lever for power. And so once uh, Bratton moved on, he put in a police commissioner, that is, uh, de Blasio put in a police commissioner who he could control. And his subsequent two police commissioners for the rest of his tenure were really just cat's paws. They were uniformed guys who came up through the rank, and it's no knock on them, but it's just they were very beholden to the mayor's office, where, as Bratton could tell the mayor to go pound sand, de Blasio wouldn't mess with him. And as a result, de Blasio, much as we have Adams now, becomes the police commissioner. And so you had the beginning of the erosion, and it took uh, it, it was snowballing downhill, getting worse and worse because it's much harder to build than it is to destroy, right? Once you start to destroy something, it just that's the easy part. It's much easier to break things down. And, of course, he couched it in all of the usual uh, liberal soaring rhetoric, et cetera, but it was a breakdown. And things were getting worse and worse. And then, of course, the spigot opened after George Floyd, which the NYPD, of course, had nothing to do with, and which is a narrative that I think we're seeing undermined now after seeing the fall of Minneapolis and some other documentaries that have looked at that whole case. And so we're really now in a position where I don't think we've yet bottomed out. And it really is depressing. You're right, because we've made so much progress. And now everybody I know is either left or wants to move out. We've got to take a quick commercial break. More with Paul on the other side. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast. And this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. 
when I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do crime statistics matter anymore in the sense of, you know, if we're not arresting people, are are crime statistics truly a reflection of what is happening in some of these areas, like New York City? Good question. And, you know, I think more and more there is a feeling that they don't because... And it's just human nature. If nobody's getting arrested or if the police take four hours to call, I was recently told that a non-emergency call, let's say a burglary in the past or something, the response time is four hours because that's how overwhelmed the police are because they're down at least 3,000 officers, which is what the PD will admit to. So it's probably a lot more. So people don't even call. They don't even report. And for shoplifting, let's say, if the security guard struggles with the shoplifter, then what would be a larceny, which is not even uh, a tracked crime, a pettit larceny, a larceny under $1,000, well, that'll bump to a robbery, and now you have a felony, and that's tracked. So the police, security guards, and the, the stores are incentivized not even to call the police because they don't want that insurance headache. You get two or three of those. The CO, the, command, the, the commanding officer of the precinct now has a bunch of felonies he didn't want to have to deal with, he's going to have to answer for He'll come in and he can do things like, okay, I'm going to shut down your store and we're going to process it as a crime scene. Well, you know what? That Dwayne Reed just lost three hours of commerce. The insurance companies will call up and say, you know what? This is a third felony that you've had. Now you have an injury. You're going to get sued. We're dropping you for your insurance purposes. The security guard, who's probably an off-duty cop who needs the money, is now going to get fired because he's the one who keeps intervening and they don't want that. So all of these things cut against reporting. And especially when you see things like felonies being dropped to misdemeanors, which Alvin Bragg is setting a record with, and if it's a misdemeanor arrest, they don't even go downtown. They go to the precinct, they get a piece of paper, and they leave. All of these things incentivize not even bothering to report. There are certain crimes that I think of the bellwether. They tend to point to murders as the bellwether crime that's that's accurate and that you can use as a true metric. Cr- uh, uh, murders and auto theft are the two crimes that people tend to say you can count on. I actually think that the better metric for actual street safety is robbery. And that's the that's the crime I always look at because that's crime that's stealing with violence. That's the basic formula for robbery. And that's when you know things in your neighborhood, in your community are going bad. When there is there are people committing violence for for a profit motive on the street where people are calling the police and saying, This guy took my wallet, he had a gun, etc. Those numbers are up. Those things tend to be reported. People need to cancel cancel credit cards, and sometimes they get hurt. And uh, I, I always look at that, and those numbers are up, and I find that disturbing. You know, you'd mentioned Bragg. Uh, does that also? I, I assume if you're a police officer, if you're an NYPD officer, you're kind of disincentivized to even arrest because. You put your life on the line, uh, you stick your neck out to get the guy, and then he's not even convicted, you know? So it's like, does that kind of, I mean, do you think cops are sort of feeling like, you know, why even go through with the arrest and and doing the job if, you know, there's not going to be any repercussions for this person? Well, I don't have to speculate. I know that to be true. Yeah. Obviously, I still have a lot of contacts on the job, and um, this was going on. Even when I was there, you know, our, our going back, the last good district attorney Manhattan had 
was Morgenthau, who was there, set a record for the longest serving. And uh, he was right in with um, the intelligence-led broken windows theory of enforcement. And he was one of the main players in why all of that worked out. Well, subsequent to that, we had a guy named Cyrus Vance, who was just a Democratic political functionary. And then we got Bragg now. So, yeah. It does. And yet, Lisa, you know, there is a, a counterfactual here that really startles in in light of the fact that Bragg is setting a record for dropping felonies to misdemeanors. He's also setting a record for declining prosecution, which is the most disheartening thing in the world. You got the guy, he you, you have him dead to rights, you write up the paperwork, you go downtown and the district attorney, because of a policy that's been set by the Bragg administration, says, no, we're not going to prosecute, period. DP this, decline prosecution, in which case all the paperwork has to be voided. And I'm thinking specifically of a absolute foundational crime in broken windows policing, which is fair jumping. And as the old maxim goes, not everybody who jumps the fair is a member of a robbery crew, but no member of a robbery crew pays the fair. So if you do fair enforcement, you're going to get guys with guns who are coming on the subway or knives or sharpened screwdrivers, screwdrivers or whatever. They're coming on to do robberies. Well, all of that stuff's gone away. And yet, and yet, in Manhattan, Alvin Bragg's jurisdiction, NYPD arrests are up by a third. So consider that. They're still working, which I find astounding. Because imagine you go to work every day and whatever you do at your job, immediately gets undone in front of your eyes, and it happens every day. And you're operating with who are supposed to be your partners, and all they do is knock you on the head. Would you still keep showing up? Would you still keep doing the job? Most of us would say no. But there is still enough of a culture of professionalism and and, uh, identity, is what I would call it, that the cops still are doing it, which I find fairly astounding. But I will say that the over-under on that is ticking, and it can't go on forever. Well, and it also just creates uh, this really dangerous environment where, you know, you have sort of these lax policies in place, but then also, like, God forbid you engage in self-defense. Mm-hmm. When you look at what initially happened to Jose Alba until there was so much backlash that a uh, store clerk who defended himself, or what's happening to Daniel Penny, who stepped in in a situation where People felt unsafe. You had a, a career criminal doing, you know, engaging in scary behavior, um, and then now, you know, he is in in serious uh, jeopardy, his life and his future. So, uh, you know, like God forbid, you engage in self defense or, or try to protect anyone else in the city. Well, everybody feels that, and it's why you know I I uh, had to give a lecture yesterday up at Columbia. And so I went way uptown and, you know, some of those subway stops up there can be can feel a little bit sort of unpoliced. And it's just interesting to see, just as it does here in Midtown, where I'm speaking to you from now, the attitude on the subways, which are always, you know, there are two sort of key areas that the police department tends to look at as a barometer of safety in the city. And and really, the media does it, too, which is Central Park and the subways, because in the bad 70s and 80s, both of those had gone south. You didn't even go in to Central Park when it was anywhere near dark. And so crimes in those areas tend to get a lot of attention. And the subways are the lifeblood of this town. And the subway crime in New York is up 22%. And you can just see the fear in normal New York, workaday New Yorkers' eyes as crazies walk by screaming and yelling, carrying on, holding a bottle. 
And you just see, and you know, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to say something that's very politically incorrect, but it is, it falls particularly on women. You know, I'm sorry, but it does. The, the crazies are predominantly male, the violent ones certainly, and they focus on women. And uh, ask any of the, you, you'll see it come out of trial because it's going to be a trial. The judge declined to dismiss the indictment um, in the penny trial. You're going to hear from witnesses who are women of color, from what I understand, that there are at least two, perhaps three, who are going to testify on Penny's behalf, saying that they were terrified when Neely started screaming. Um, I saw it, as I said, I, I'm on a subway a lot I was on yesterday, and you see people inching away, inching by, young women staying together, staying alert. There's no way to live in a modern city. What kind of city is this where you go out, if you're a young woman or a young man, an old man, whatever, and you have to be fearful as you go from one place to another in one of the most expensive subway systems in the world? It's not the way to live, and it's palpable, and we all see it, and the cops feel it too. Because aside from the fact that the attacks on the cops are up, we saw the statistics the other day that the attacks on NYPD officers are at a record level, but they also know that who's also gunning for them, in addition to the perps, are the prosecutors. And God forbid you go a little too far if you press a diaphragm. New York City's uh, city council has the diaphragm law. If in wrestling with a perp, you depress that perp's diaphragm, for an instant, you're guilty of a misdemeanor in this town. And I have been in the middle of an attempt to charge one of the officers who was defending himself. They dropped the charges against the perp, and they wanted to arrest a cop for the misdemeanor. Now, I'm not going to go into the details. I was still working, but let's just say we were able to successfully argue that this case shouldn't be brought. But if you don't believe that the district attorneys in New York City are gunning for a case like that to make their careers, you don't know this town. You know, you're a lawyer. Do you think that Daniel Penny was legally justified in his actions? I do. And uh, I'm not going to be too equivocating about that. Look, it's going to come down to the defense of justification, it's called legally. And what it really means is, was he justified in doing what he did? Was he able to overcome uh, what he can he articulate that the actions he took were commensurate with the threat that he faced? Now, I say it without equivocation based on the facts that I know. So I guess I am equivocating because, you know, I don't know everything that's going to come out at trial. And it's going to be clear that the people in that subway car genuinely feared for their lives, or at least feared that something very violent was going to happen. And, you know, under the law, you are not required to allow yourself to be attacked and then see how far the guy goes before you respond. The law does allow for a sort of preemptive strike, for lack of a better term. Now, it has to be, again, commensurate. You know, you can't pull out a gun and start shooting because somebody asks you for a dollar on the street. And that would be the extreme example. But if the testimony in that subway car is very easy to be sitting in Alvin Bragg's office and say Penny should have handled it differently. But when you have a guy like Penny who was screaming, I want to die, I don't care if I go to jail, and screaming in women's faces, etc., he took the actions that he felt were necessary. The intent to kill was not there. And so I think the case was overcharged, and I think it was mishandled, and I think it was a makeup for the Jose Alba case that, uh, that you reference. There's going to be a trial. It's going to be really ugly. Unfortunately, it's going to be a Manhattan jury. And all you can hope is that on that jury, there's one person, male, female, old, white, black, green, whatever, who has been on the subway, had that experience, and understands where Mr. Penny was coming from. Quick break. More on the mess that is New York City. 
I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast. And this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As an Intel guy who's you know, done that in a city that gets a lot of threats. Uh, we, we've seen a, a lot of this huge influx of illegal immigrants, huge influx of, well, I, I think they're illegal immigrants, but, you know, seeking asylum, likely falsely, that have been, you know, heading to the to New York City now. Um, how does that complicate both, one, the threat of terrorism when you already have the FBI director who has warned of, you know, Hamas-linked people being the United States, warned of, you know, the border being an issue on that. Uh, and then two, just crime in the city where you have the, the an influx of people who, you know, likely already broke the law in coming here. Yeah, so we didn't have enough problems, right? Now we're going, yeah, to, import, right. so we're going to import some more. So let's use history. Again, it's one of the things that's a benefit of having been in the, in the middle of a lot of this for a long time. You see the patterns repeated, and so you can identify them. 1980s, we had the Mariel boat lift. Castro uh, sent a contingent of about 150,000 Cuban asylees to the port of Key West, Florida at Jimmy Carter's invitation during an election year. It was similar political pandering. Most of them, solid people who ended up becoming part of the American fabric. But what Castro also did infamously, uh, it's in the movie Scarface, is he emptied the prisons and the insane asylums. And here's the key point. When we became aware of what he had done, 
he wouldn't take them back when we tried to send them back. Now, I have a, uh, a website and a blog called The Ops Desk, and I have a couple of videos up there that go through this because some of the details on this are amazing because they tracked it today. Out of 150, 160,000 people that Castro sent, 1,700 were acknowledged hardened criminals. We had at least two serial killers, one of whom operated here in New York, another one who operated in Miami. <clears throat> we had a guy who killed somebody inside St. Patrick's Cathedral. Here's another thing. He sent, by, according to somebody who was captured and who was flipped by the feds, 3,000 intelligence agents. Cuba has a very, very active intelligence arm. So why do I go into it? It was Soviet trained, by the way. Why do I go into that? Because Cuba provides Venezuela's intel training and supervision. Okay, they, the Venezuela and Cuba are fellow travelers. They're, you know, far left communist regimes, notionally, but really they're just dictatorships. And the Cubans have been teaching Venezuelans how to do intelligence for years. And that's what we got here. We got another boat lift. Uh, Maduro is almost certainly, uh, Trump's got this right. Maduro is emptying his prisons. He's emptying his insane asylums. But he's also sending us intelligence agents. And you know what? Look at Venezuela's allies. Iran, China. Okay. The former vice president of Venezuela is a guy named Suleiman. He's a Syrian-Lebanese Shia who is Hezbollah-linked. So I don't have to speculate very far to say that some of the characters coming in here are potentially and almost likely to be serious dangers in terms of intelligence and terrorism. But then also, as you point out, and as we're discovering by hard practice here, we're getting organized criminal gangs. And the NYPD just took down a big ring of smashing grabs, which was quite sophisticated because they were grabbing the phones, but it didn't end there. They had tech people who could jailbreak the phones, get into the phones, and then empty people's bank accounts using Venmo and other apps, Apple Pay, etc. That's pretty sophisticated. These phones are supposed to be unbreakable. And that almost argues a nation state level of uh, cryptography. So I'm very surprised. I actually uh, will confess I was surprised about that. And the head of the ring is unapprehended, which tells me he's likely back in Venezuela. And the ring went back to, to Florida, then to Texas, and then the phones were going out of the country and down to Venezuela and Colombia, reportedly. That's a very big ring, very sophisticated, all of it imported. And you know what, Lisa? There's a big missing piece when you look at something like that. Where are the feds? Kudos to NYPD for taking it down. They're the largest police agency in the Western Hemisphere. They have the sophistication and the bodies to do it. I know that. I ran that uh, the intelligence operations for, God, 12, 15 years. I know what they can do. But it shouldn't be beholden to them. It shouldn't be on them to try to put together a case like that that stretches to Florida, to Texas, and down into South America. That's very much a federal mandate. And as usual with this administration on anything that could hurt re-election, he's completely absentee. Where is Ray? <clears throat> Where is the president? Where is the attorney general? You know, Garland is far too busy trying to protect Biden's flank on all the investigations into him than he is to go with a case like this. Well, you know, that's the I think the frustrating thing, I'm sure for you uh, as someone who has you know, served and protected a city. Uh, but, you know, even just for, for someone like me and I think for most Americans is like, where are the feds? Well, you know, they're going after Trump. And, you know, using resources or taxpayer dollars to, to do that. Or, or you look at, you know, New York City, you've got all this crime, all these issues that you just laid out. 
yet they've got the time and the resources to go after Trump. And it's like, you know, it, it, like they don't care about the plight of New Yorkers or, or Americans, but they sure as hell care about sticking it to, you know, one man. They do. And what they really care about is maintaining their power. Right. So look at some of the culprits. I mean, Alvin Bragg, who doesn't seem to be able to put together a newsworthy case at gunpoint, manages to put together a preposterous 33 uh, point uh, indictment of Donald Trump that is basically founds in some allegation of accounting error. All right. We're going to be seeing that case soon. That's a criminal case. Um, and then you and I can, by the way, I can tell you one of my partners on the uh, the ops desk that I was just talking about is the former commanding officer of NYPD financial crime. And he's incredulous over the fact that this case was even brought. So I don't have to judge. And I brought a few financial cases as well. I know this would never have gotten off the ground, but I don't I have I default to him and say, well, what do you make of this? And couldn't believe his eyes. But let's move on from Bragg. There's also Tish James. Now, the Tish James case that just came down with the $35 million, uh, $355 million settlement was such a dog. Bragg's, Bragg's office walked away from it criminally. They wouldn't bring it criminally. It was floated by them. They rejected it. Okay. So what happened? James, who likes to call herself New York State's top law enforcement officer, which is a, a joke, and who, by the way, during the summer of love 2020, when my cops were getting bricks bounced off their faces and they had nothing to do with the Floyd situation, was on Twitter giving a hotline for anybody out there who could claim police abuse during the riots to reach out and lodge a complaint with her so that she could investigate the officers. Okay, so they were burning down the city, billions of dollars of damage, a week of rioting, hundreds of cops injured. But her main remit was, let me know if there's any cops I can prosecute. And she put that right out on Twitter, DM me, I have people monitoring it. So that's who you're dealing with. She comes into office vowing to get Trump. Everybody else walks away from the case. Why does she bring then a civil case? She has the ability to bring criminal cases. Why did she bring a civil case? You got to ask yourself, why? Because in a civil case, the standard of proof for a win is preponderance of the evidence, only 51%. Whereas in a criminal case, it's beyond a reasonable doubt, which is generally considered to be a 97 to 99% assurance. So a civil case is always easier to win, as we saw in the O.J. Simpson case, right? He beat the criminal case. They got him civilly. She knew she'd be able to slam dunk this with a Manhattan grand jury. I'm sorry, with a Manhattan uh, civil jury. And that's why she did it. And nobody else would sign on to the case. In a case like this, with this kind of money, invariably, you get federal agencies sneaking around saying, okay, you know what? We're going to attach earnings. We're going to come in. We're going to maybe go criminal. We're going to charge wire fraud, mail fraud, all these sort of amorphous charges the feds love that allow them to do a money grab. They all steered clear of it because they knew it was a barking dog. It's going to have a lot of trouble on appeal. I mean, it, the, the uh, amount of the settlement is never going to hold up. It actually is probably an Eighth Amendment violation for cruel and unusual punishment, even though it's not a criminal case. A really uh, uh, harsh civil decision can segue into that area and disqualifies and they know it and that's why Engeron front loaded it to say that Trump had to pay interest can't do business for three years can't use a New York bank he knows this is a dog and that it's going to get knocked around on appeal but all they really want to do is take Trump off the set going into November well that certainly seems to be you know they're trying to bankrupt him or put him in jail or both if they they can um which is a, a sad state about you know where we are 
in the country and just the fact that, you know, there doesn't seem to be any equal application of the law, you know, there doesn't even, the rule of law doesn't even seem to exist anymore, to be honest. Very disheartening for somebody who grew up in the criminal justice system here. You know, my old man was a cop. My grandfather was a carbonary, as they call him back in Italy. That's a federal cop back there, kind of in my blood. And to watch, you know, people forget Iraq had a constitution. Syria had a constitution. South Africa had a constitution during apartheid. Constitution's a piece of paper. At the end of the day, it comes down to the integrity and the professionalism of the people who have to safeguard and administer it. And in that area, we're really suffering. You know, before we go, um, what is the biggest thing we could do to restore order to our cities and to the justice system? Vote. It's really not that complicated. It's vote. You know, you and I both know what happens, Lisa. Only the most fired up and dedicated go out to vote in these small local level elections. And they really matter. Right now, Adams is comparatively powerless in New York. I mean, yeah, he's the mayor. Sure, he's got the bully pulpit a little bit. But really, the city council has hemmed him in. And up in Albany, during the Cuomo years, Cuomo was at war with de Blasio because they were trying to occupy a similar progressive space, and they just uh, personally didn't like each other. And so Albany asserted through various means, including the bail reforms, which are statewide, they asserted a lot of power over New York. Traditionally, New York City is the tail that wags the dog of New York State. That's been reversed. And nobody votes in these Albany elections, the statewide legislature. Nobody votes in the city council, New York City council uh, uh, elections. And so... What do you get? You get the most progressive, the most extreme, the loudest voices. They manage to rally their voters. They get them out there and they win. And then common people who have everyday concerns like food on the table and getting to and from work safely look around and say, how did it get so far? But invariably, invariably, if you then say, well, did you vote in the last city council election? They'll say, when was that? So if I could put a very fine point on it, All politics is indeed local. City councils, state legislatures, school boards, these things matter. And the left has managed to leverage these and and weaponize them. They're much better at that stuff than the right is. The right better wake up because uh, we're we're being beaten on a granular level, and it matters. Well, you heard the man. Go vote. (laughs) Paul, uh, we appreciate you taking the time. This is super interesting. Learned a lot from you. Um, Appreciate you bringing your expertise to my audience and for taking the time to come on the show. Lisa, any time for you, and I appreciate you having me. Thank you. I was Paul Morrow. Appreciate him taking the time. Uh, Really interesting interview. I want to thank you guys at home for listening every Monday and Thursday, but you can listen throughout the week. I want to thank John Cassio, my producer, for putting the show together. Until next time. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. 